BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. During the holidays, no matter what your beliefs are, there are lots of opportunities to hear or tell a great story. And there's a certain pleasure we get from listening to a story or watching a movie version of it or reading it in a book. So why not take this holiday time to re-experience the greatest story of all time, the story of the history of the universe and life on Earth? There's a lot of great information from scientists of all fields telling us what happened from the moment there was a big bang to where we are today and maybe even looking out into the far future. But I've never come across all of this information told in a form that is so compelling and interesting that it rivals some of my favorite novels. This telling is by Henry G. He's a senior editor at Nature and the author of several books, including Jacob's Ladder, In Search of Deep Time, The Accidental Species. He's appeared on BBC television and radio, has written for The Guardian, The Times, and BBC Focus. And now he's just published a new book called A Very Short History of Life on Earth. And I'm telling you, this one's a page turner. Henry G., welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. So this episode is happening around the holiday time. It's a time when we often get immersed in various kinds of stories and fantastical tales. And so I'm really delighted to have you on the show to give us what is probably the most amazing, but also seemingly fantastical tale in the entire history of the universe. (laughs) Yeah, it it certainly is. Well, I think so. Yeah. And I I loved your, I don't know if it was a nod to Game of Thrones, but your first chapter is called A Song of Fire and Ice. Oh, very, very, very much. You you, um, you saw what I did there, uh, obviously. I did, I did. And I loved it. So I've actually never asked a guest uh, of Inquiring Minds to do this, but I would really like it if you would read a little bit from that very first chapter, um, starting in the middle of page four. Yeah, I have that here. Because I think there is no better introduction to what this is all about than having you read from it. So, so give us a read. Um, are you sitting comfortably? 
<laughs> yes. That then I'll begin. Amid all this tumult and disaster, life began. It was the tumult and disaster that fed it, nurtured it, made it develop and grow. Life evolved in the deepest depths of the ocean, where the edges of tectonic plates plunged into the crust, and where boiling hot jets of water, rich in minerals and under extreme pressure, gushed out from cracks in the ocean floor. The earliest living things were no more than scummy membranes across microscopic gaps in rock. They formed when the rising currents became turbulent and, diverted into eddies and losing energy, dumped their cargo of mineral-rich debris into gaps and pores in the rock. These membranes were imperfect, sieve-like, and, like sieves, allowed some substances to cross, but not others. Even though they were porous, the environment inside the membranes became different from the raging maelstrom beyond, calmer, more ordered. A log cabin with a roof and wall is still a haven from the arctic blast outside, even if its door bangs and its windows rattle. The membranes made a virtue of their leakiness, using holes as gateways for energy and nutrients and as exit points for waste. Protected from the chemical clamour of the outside world, these tiny pools were havens of order. Slowly, they refined the generation of energy, using it to bud off small bubbles, each encased in its own portion of the parent membrane. This was haphazard at first, but gradually became more predictable as a result of the development of an internal chemical template that could be copied and passed down to new generations of membrane-bound bubbles. This ensured that new generations of bubbles were, more or less, faithful copies of their parents. The more efficient bubbles began to thrive at the expense of those less well-ordered. These simple bubbles found themselves at the very gates of life, in that they found a way to halt, if temporarily and with great effort, the otherwise inexorable increase in entropy, the net amount of disorder in the universe, such is an essential property of life. These foamy lavas of soap bubble cells stood as tiny clenched fists defiant against the lifeless world. So listeners, that is but two pages of this. Well, it's called A Very Short History of Life on Earth, um, and it reads as you can see, like a great, you know, George R. R. Martin novel. It's only 206 pages and we cover 4.6 billion years, give or take a billion. And yet you wrote it with such poetry and such information in each sentence. I just want to ask you, first off, if we could like look underneath the hood a little bit at your process. I mean, because it seems to me that you as an editor of nature, you know, as someone who is very much, I'm sure, concerned about accuracy, to be able to be accurate and yet tell such a good story seems to me remarkable. So how do you do it? Well, thank you very much for those kind words. What I do is cheat because what I didn't say anything about in the passage that I read was that a lot of the science is in the footnotes at the end. And that part 
that I read as footnoted that says, hey, readers, this is the closest I get to making stuff up because we can't actually say anything definitive about the very origins of life. So what I do um, as a as a scientist, because all trained scientists feel undressed unless they can support everything they say with a footnote. In fact, one science fiction writer said that if you read nature obsessively enough, your dreams will start to carry footnotes to other dreams. <laughs> uh, so there are lots of footnotes. So, But the second one is, as he said in the introduction, this is a great story. So I wanted to tell it as a story. And although I am a scientist and a science journalist, I also love reading science fiction and fantasy fiction. And I grew up reading Tolkien. And I wanted to add some of the resonance and the use of language to make this story into a thrilling, I hope, epic tale that's more than just the usual scientific discourse on how life might have evolved, la di da di da here's some cells, here's some DNA, and uh, this is what scientists think happened. I, so I wanted to make it a story. As when I uh, was writing books, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, I would write stuff and I'd discourse and I'd be writing with great uh, fun and uh, absorption and I was the text was flowing like a very flowy thing and I'd get it back from my editor with red lines through it all saying, Henry, just tell the story. And that's actually very difficult to do. Uh, you mm -hmm. usually find yourself being distracted by lots of little baubles along the highway. But what I wanted to do was just tell the story. And the story of life is the greatest story. It's full of heroes and villains and uh, hairbreadth escapes and cliffhangers and fantastic vistas and incredibly strange creatures and immense periods of time. And I thought, wow, this is a great canvas for writing a story. So I just sat and wrote the story. Well, that's very simple. It took quite a long time to get it into this particular condensed form. Uh, but that's essentially what I did. And the great thing about writing a book, even one without pictures, is that was kind of deliberate. I was reminded of what a great science fiction writer, Ian M. Banks, wrote, which is the great thing about writing as opposed to, say, filmmaking, is you can have an infinitely large special effects budget. So with the cost of almost nothing, you can conjure up asteroid impacts and vast earthquakes and huge apocalypses and ice ages that cover the whole Earth and all the great stuff that I've got in this tiny book. You know, and I, I'm sure as a paleontologist, you know, one of the kind of sins to avoid is anthropomorphizing. But in this case, your story has characters that have sort of human-like or at least, but, uh, you know, it's not just human, it's lifelike kind of, and, um, you know, a desire to survive, a desire to outcompete, etc. But that's at the core of sort of very much what I like about it is even in the beginning, we talk you, you talk about how it's not kind of an intentional thing. It's kind of something that happened. And that was the passage that you read is a great example of that, of how there are these membranes that provided a bit of shelter and allowed for these other things to happen. But there's still a sense that there's a character there. Yeah, my editor, uh, Ravi Merchandani, uh, who I've known for a very long time, he, he said, um, I have to be careful about anthropomorphizing 
uh, uh, things here. And it's something that I've cautioned people against in earlier books is that you can't tell stories like that. But thinking about it as a story rather than as a scientific exercise, that's exactly what you do. That's exactly what you should do uh, to make it kind of intelligent and interesting. Uh, One of the reasons, for example, that all the aliens in Star Trek and even Star Wars are kind of humanoid is that it's actually quite hard to feel empathy with with a blob or an mm-hmm. intelligent intelligent slug, or, or anything like that. Uh, so if you want to carry your readers with you, you have to make them feel something for the for the characters. Okay, you don't have to make you know all your mice into Mickey Mouse, but you have to give a bit of drama to it, even though there is no actual purpose to it. So I hope that even if you're reading about bacteria that squirted oxygen into the oxygen-free atmosphere, thus killing all their friends 2.5 billion years ago. Uh, Even though they're mindless bacteria, I'm hoping to make people feel that they were there and this was important. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely feels that way. And it was the first time, I have to say, where I have been continuously like wanting to know more what happens next what happens next especially you know given that like a a large portion of the book takes place well before humans are even a glint in any kind of dna and yet it's still interesting not even not just as a from a kind of scientific or intellectual exercise but just like all the richness the vivid details that you conjure up and you know i think if you hadn't made it into this story setting Certainly, I wouldn't have continued to come back to it, you know, wanting to turn the next page to find out what happened. Uh, It's great. Thank you for saying that. Of course, I'm helped because geological periods that comprise the record of the past on Earth tend to fall into convenient chapters that end with catastrophes or calamities. Because the Victorian leisured gentlemen, who they were, who defined the geological periods, defined them on the basis of the fossils they contained. And they found that the fossils in one period tended to be quite different from the fossils in the next one. So obviously, something had happened that replaced one load of fossils with another one. And quite often, we find that at the end of geological periods, there was some kind of a catastrophe, like an asteroid impact or some episode of continental drift or mountain building that changed one thing for another and of course so that's a gift for a writer because it gives you wonderful ways of having cliffhangers and getting rid of characters i mean it's like uh, and some of these seem totally random and shocking it's like the red wedding in game of thrones or when you know when you watch the first series of game of thrones you think it's all about sean bean and you think the whole thing's going to be sean bean and then he gets killed at the end of series one and then you start to wonder if sean bean has any contract that he should be bumped off by the end of series <laughs> one uh, i mean even in the martian he gets fired uh, and has to play golf uh, so uh, it, it, what you do is the history of life is is constructed so that you can make a thrilling story made out of episodes. It, it was a gift. It's a gift to a writer. 
And, you know, you, you have uh, plenty of spoilers about sort of what's going to happen to our <laughs> pithy human existence. Um, I mean, you're the very first sentence, once upon a time, a giant star was dying, portends the end of our own. Um, oh, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to talk a little bit about that, about how how you come to grips knowing that the extinction of life on Earth in your very first timeline is already laid out. It's already there. And it's quite a bit closer to now <laughs> than everything that came beforehand. So the distance between birth of the universe and now is about 10 times greater than between now and extinction of life on Earth. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you grapple with that and, and how that affects your view on, you know, these cataclysmic events that we are faced with, um, like climate change and what it might do for the extinction of our species. Well, first in constructing a story, I, I didn't really think of it like that, but only in retrospect, I thought of two or three different things. Uh, sometimes a story is richer if you already know the ending. I mean, one of my favourite books is Emma by Jane Austen. And years ago, when I was a lad, I thought Jane Austen was just for girls. You know, it's only posh people having dances and tea parties. And while well, at the time, the Napoleonic Wars were raging and all the, the, the most exciting thing that happens in, in, in a Jane Austen story is somebody drops a teaspoon. But then one of the scholars of uh, of Jane Austen, uh, David Lodge said, if you read Emma, it's much more fun when you know the ending and you can you you know the consequences of Emma's actions. So if you read it for the first time, it's a great yarn. But when you read it from the second time, even if you know what's going to happen, that the story is richer uh, for all that because you feel the kind of impending doom, like you know, watching a road crash happen and you can't do anything about it and the other one was i suppose came from my fondness for tolkien and for the older kinds of viking type of stories like beowulf and the norse myths is in the viking in the norse religion they knew that the end of the world ragnarok the last battle was going to happen and they would lose actually got the gods lose in ragnarok but they still kept fighting nonetheless. It was still worth doing, even though they were going to lose. And of course, you know, back to the when you were a kid, which I'm sure is much more recently than me, you always loved the stories that you knew the ending. And if you knew the words in between, it was somehow comforting. My mother tells me that when my sister and I were read Peter Rabbit, you know, by Beatrix Potter. And if she would inadvertently miss a page, she'd be told all about it. No, you forgot uh, the, the page. And it even we knew it off by heart, even down to each sentence. And when you think about it, this is a story supposedly for children, but looked at objectively, this is about a single mother with four children who has to raise money by selling rabbit tobacco on the streets and she has to leave her children unattended and one of her children peter rabbit is a juvenile delinquent who can't help getting into trouble and 
the reason she's a single parent is because her husband is a career criminal who got killed uh, during a, a botched robbery and, what's more, eaten uh, by the householder. But um, when you're a small child, you, you, you don't think of that. You just enjoy the story and you enjoy the words and the repetition. So this is the beginnings of story. Uh, even before people were literate, people would gather around the campfire in the mead hall and listen to the bard telling them things they already knew. And it was the little embellishments maybe along the way, the kind of in-jokes. But it's the stories that we already know that are often the most fun. This is why you tend not to keep very many thrillers or murder mysteries hanging around in your house. Because unless it's a particularly good one, once you know who done it, it's kind of spoiled. Once you know the spoilers, it's spoiled. Unless it's something that you feel is told very well. And the tale is all in the telling uh, rather than the result. So that's a rather long answer to part one of your question, and I've forgotten the part two. It was about the, the fate of human beings and and other s- small matters like that. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that in a minute, but I do want to stick with this notion too for a minute because that's actually one of the reasons that I so loved that section that you asked that I asked you to read from on page four about the membranes. Because it's a foreshadowing of essentially what in what equips us with a nervous system, what allows us to have neurons that send messages, right? It's the porous membranes. And to so like see you lay out about how this is because they were scum on rocks. Like it just because I know where the story is going, it's so much richer for me. Oh, well, thank you. That's great. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that either, but that's true. I mean, the nervous, uh, the neuroscientists now think that the, the synapse actually originated before the nerves. In other words, it's that the donut actually started as a hole and the actual donut grew around the hole, which is a weird thing. But yes, it's that cells are powered by electricity and they're powered by electrical potential across membranes. And one of the uh, influences behind that was a fantastic book I read a few years ago by a man called Nick Lane called The Vital Question. And he talks about life on Earth. And he talks essentially that life started by pumping protons across membranes. Because unless you have a way of separating electrical charge, you can't have any kind of life. You can't have DNA. You can't have anything. You have to have some way of conserving and channeling and using energy. Uh, and the electrical potential across a membrane is is quite high. It's the, the order of millivolts, which is the kind of potential in the pickup of an electric guitar. So, so it's and that's across a microscopic membrane. Uh, so, once proto life. Uh, got the knack of separating molecules across semi-permeable membranes, they were almost all the way there. The whole business about information, DNA and genetics came later. And that's why I didn't go over big on that. Besides, I didn't want to do the usual science writing thing of saying the informational molecule is DNA and it's A and C and G and T and yawn, yawn, yawn. I didn't want to to do all that. I wanted to, to keep it as broad brush as I possibly could. And of course, in the footnotes, you can look up whatever you like, but it's not essential to to enjoying the story, I hope. 
No, and I think that's one of the things too that um, throughout there are things that you highlight that many other histories of the of the universe or the or the world ha- have not um, focused on, and so it, it it feels very new, like new information at every every turn of the page. Maybe we'll get to the second part of my question about just how do you continue to uh, get through your day knowing everything is going to end. It's just like a question I ask, you know, um, physicists and I guess now paleontologists alike because it's still something that I struggle with. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But let's do a couple more um, steps along the story. So we go from these little membranes and, you know, how do we get from there to the backbone? Um, and maybe that's a, a good next place to go. I'm going to sort of try and do this uh, in a very telescoped way, rather like the, the, um, the opening sequence to the Big Bang Theory. From the little membranes evolved the first bacterial cells. And bacterial cells look very boring, but are incredibly effective at chemistry. They're little bacteria that do all kinds of things. And they live in communities such that the food of one bacterium is the waste product of another bacterium. And they they recycle whole ecological communities together. So they're very gregarious. So the next stage after that was when bacteria got together uh, so effectively that little colonies became the cell, the eukaryotic cell, where there's some bacteria that became the chloroplast, that's the green bit that does photosynthesis in plants, and some bacteria became the mitochondria, the little pink power packs that almost all cells have, and other bacteria became the nucleus, they became the the library and a repository of of heredity. Uh, So that was the eukaryotic cell. And what happens is something that that, that dawned on me while I was writing the book was that life tends to respond to challenges by becoming more complex and through that more efficient. Uh, So it was the great oxidation event that uh, in uh, two and a half billion years ago and the subsequent 300 million year ice age 
that prompted bacteria to become cells. And then during the next epoch, various events prompted the eukaryotic cells to get together themselves, another order of complexity, to become multicellular creatures. And so in a phase of uh, life called the boring billion, which is only boring for geologists who don't get out of bed unless there's an apocalypse, eukaryotes evolved so that you can see the first things that look a bit like fungi and seaweeds uh, and little creeping things. Uh, But then uh, another uh, phase of uh, apocalypse and ice ages about 700 million years ago, that generated the animals that were tough, hardened and looking for trouble. Uh, So the animals originated mm, 700-ish million years ago. But then another, what would you believe it, episode of catastrophe at the beginning of the Cambrian period when the earth was so weathered that virtually all the minerals on the earth were washed into the sea, allowed animals to construct skeletons with hard parts. And that's when the fossil record really begins, because most fossils are hard parts. So they invented teeth, so they didn't have to suck their prey to death. And those that were being sucked to death developed armour. So in the Cambrian period, between about five, about around 500 million years ago, most kinds of animal we know today, and quite a lot of other ones, first appeared in the fossil record. And among those animals were still very soft-bodied creatures, the first fish. They had an internal structure, which became the backbone, that they could anchor muscles to and flip through the water. Later on, not much later on, they became armoured on the outside because they kept being attacked by these gigantic, googly-eyed, nightmarish sea scorpions, which really uh, the earliest fishes spent most of their time escaping. Yeah, I mean, you talk about how it was these, yeah, the the giant sea scorpions that that the fish were running away from, and you, you make this really nice introduction to the mammal chapter, you know, once upon a time, back in the Devonian period, there was a pair of bones inside an armored fish. <laughs> but the fish paid them no mind because it was busy running away from the giant sea scorpion. So tell us about these two bones and their significance. Ah, well, first of all, the giant sea scorpions. I like to think of them as, the, as these nightmarish animals that we always have just at the edge of our consciousness. You know, the, the creatures under the bed, the dragons, the, the things that inhabit misty forests. Uh, they're like the, the, the mythical adversary, but they're not mythical. I mean, they really were there and they really were terrifying, especially if you were only a fish a couple of inches long. But the two bones, when I said that fish got to be armoured, the backbone was a squishy cartilaginous structure for a long time a bit like one of those long, thin balloons that entertainers twist into entertaining shapes at parties, that you could twist them around and they'd always spring back. But over the head region, the fish were armoured on the outside. They had armoured helmets. And what these little bones did was they were bracing struts. They would um, brace this helmet on the outside against the brain case, which was just soft cartilage on the inside. So they were just structural Uh, beams to start with. But by the chance of evolution, it happened that the inner edge, the inner end on the brain case, 
happened to sit next to the inner ear, which was an organ of balance, really. Um, and on the outer end, happened to brace a gill slit. So and this was all completely by chance, just by the luck of anatomy. And when animals first came onto land, the gill slit became roofed over by a thin membrane and became the eardrum. And so this strut connected the eardrum on one side, on the outside, to the inner ear on the inside. And this strut became a conductor of sound. It, by its vibration, conducted sound. And we still have that in our ear today. It's called the stapes or stirrup bone. It doesn't look like a strut in human beings. It's got a little hole in the middle for an artery to go through and a little flat plate that sits against the inner ear. So it looks like a stirrup. And for millions of years, that was the way that animals heard sound. Vibrations on the air, on the eardrum, would vibrate this stapes and it would conduct the vibrations into the inner ear. But then in mammals, two other bones were added to use a kind of horny-handed blacksmith metaphor. One was called the anvil and one was called the hammer. Uh, so there's this blacksmith of evolution walloping a stirrup with his anvil and his hammer. And in the mammals, these bones, which became very small and thin, amplified the sound and allowed higher frequencies to be heard. Now, birds, which still have the one bone, although they make a lot of noise, they can't hear sounds very much above, well, to use numbers, 10,000 hertz, 10 kilohertz, whereas small children can hear to 20,000. Now, I probably can't hear more than 10,000 because I'm nearly 60 and have listened to hard rock all my life, so that's me. But many mammals can hear much higher than that. Dogs, that's why dog whistles work. We can't hear them, but the dogs can. Dolphins, bats, they can hear many times higher than that. But when the mammals evolved this hearing, it became their own realm. It was as if they'd been, to be metaphorical, floundering about in a dark forest all their lives and had suddenly found this gate in the woods that led onto this huge field with open vistas. And it was all their own. And that's one of the great things that makes mammals mammals is this fantastic hearing. And it all started with two bones in the back of the skull when a fish was trying to avoid being eaten by a giant sea scorpion. Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such a fascinating history right there. I mean, that's what enables podcasts. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of like in some ways our own history. Well, you could write an entire book and people have about the origin of the, the mammalian ear. It's just the most amazing story in itself. So we're going to run short on time relatively soon and we still have quite a bit to cover. So let me just jump to another part of the story. Homo erectus. And, um, you know, the way that you tell the story of Homo erectus doesn't sound like a particularly compassionate <laughs> um, ancestor. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of the kind of just the sort of way in which fire played a role in getting some some of our ancestors to live longer than others, and then just how brutal it must have been? Well, we tend to think of when our ancestors were inventing tools and inventing technology, that they were looking up in some fit of heroic prolepsis and say, ah, I've just invented fire. This is Now I'm going to go and invent the wheel and civilization. But of course, they didn't do it like that. And 
in a marvellous book, Pat Chipman and Alan Walker wrote about Homo erectus, and they said in many ways it looked very human, but if you looked into its eyes, you wouldn't see any humanity. You'd see the, the canny wisdom of a savannah predator, like a hunting dog, because that's what Homo erectus was. It was a it was a savannah predator that hunted in packs. But Homo erectus, like um, all uh, humans, are very good at sexual display, extreme violence and cookery. Now, somewhere along the line, Homo erectus tamed the use of fire and found that uh, eating meat, which is what they were specialised to do, around a fire was a sociable thing to do, especially if you cooked the meat because the meat became tender and um, more chewable and uh, easier to digest. And another thing they wouldn't have realised at the time was when you cook meat, it kills any germs or parasites that might have existed in the meat. So uh, what meat does is it gives you a huge amount of concentrated calories that chewing raw vegetation doesn't do. To get the same amount of energy from chewing raw vegetation, you have to chew it all the time, which is why the contemporary of Homo erectus, which was a creature called Paranthropus, a pure vegetarian, spent all its time chewing. And it had huge teeth and immense chewing muscles. It was a kind of human version of a cow. But Homo erectus, the teeth were smaller, the muscles were smaller. And another thing that eating food along with a lot of other things allowed, was the enlargement of the brain. Uh, the brain of Homo erectus wasn't as large as ours, but actually it's not really the size, it's how you use it with brains. So just talking about brain size is only one part of the story. Predators tend to have more brains than prey anyway. But brains are very, very expensive to run, and uh, one way to run them is to feed yourself a lot with the high-density energy-rich, easy-to-digest food source, such as meat. Another thing that this allowed was herbivores often have very big guts because a lot of the nutrition comes from fermenting the food in a gut, like a gigantic compost heap, which is why cows fart a lot uh, and have to chew their food a lot to get the same energy. But uh, Homo erectus could have a slimmer gut because it's easier to absorb um, a mixed diet based on meat. And because they had a slimmer gut, they had a taller, leaner frame that allowed them to do something that earlier hominins couldn't do, which was run. And now hominins had been bipedal for millions of years by that time, but they had a rather, had rather short legs and were rather pot-bellied, so they could walk around perfectly fine, but they, wouldn't, they were not very good as, as runners. So one thing that Homo erectus invented was long-distance running. And just like hunting dogs, they pursued game for mile after mile after mile until the game fell down with exhaustion. Because although human beings are not very good sprinters compared with other animals, human beings are excellent long-distance runners, one of the best in the animal kingdom. Um, and so they could slowly pursue other animals until they died of heat exhaustion. And that's how hunters work today in um, traditional societies. And Homo erectus was the first to perfect that art.
Yeah, it's so fascinating to sort of hear about these facts placed within this context of, you know, what's happening when. And so just as you describe, all of the things that you've just said are backed up by solid factual evidence, but it also makes for a great story. So now we get towards the end of the story, and one in which doesn't end well for any of the hominins, you know, ancestors going going forward. And also... In terms of um, this long view perspective, I mean, I think a, a lot of us and, and, and hopefully many more of us as um, we continue to understand what we can do and the causes are, are very, very worried about climate change and, and in particular, you know, what, what humans are doing. So, you know, tell us a little bit about sort of your long view and, and does it give you a bit of a sanguine perspective on... Uh, oh, well, uh, yes and no. Sometimes I spend the day in complete terror about what's going to happen to the human species. But then, really, one just has to get through one's day as uh, elegantly as possible, uh, being as nice to people as one can. So I tend to look askance at the kind of hysterical climate change industry. Oh, it's all going to die. It's all going to be terrible. However, this isn't to say that climate change caused by human beings isn't an urgent problem, because it is. It's a very, very urgent problem, but it's not about saving the planet. The planet will happily carry on whether we're here or not. It's about saving ourselves to ensure that we uh, can continue to live on the planet that provides us with all our means for living, our fresh air and clean water and food. Uh, So it's necessary to try and live more sustainably and economically in the world. Now, we are already doing things better. It's not true that people and governments and economies and companies are not being, uh, are not thinking about this because people have been making economies for a long time. Sustainability started in the 1970s. I mean, nobody drives those huge cars anymore, your engines at both ends. You only ever see them in Greece now. And the internal, they're taking the long view, a lot of the threats that humans have created are very, very recent. I mean, the, the, the huge expansion in the population is less than a century old. The internal combustion engine is less than 150 years old. And yet, within 30 years, it will be as extinct as typewriters. It will be there as a kind of heritage item. But people will be driving electric cars or not driving at all. I remember when plastics were first used in a in a great way. And this was only when I was a child. It wasn't like in ancient history. And already people have been trying to phase out these things. So people are aware of the things that are happening uh, in our lifestyles and have been doing going some way to correct it. A fact that I discovered, which made me really sit up, was that the per capita energy use in Britain has declined by a fifth since the year 2000. That's a fifth in 20 years. And it's the same in many other developed economies. I mean, when I went to university, gosh, 30 years ago, I used to, you know how it was, everyone went with these armfuls of vinyl records and record players, and we had light bulbs that were had tungsten filaments and had mostly heat. Now we don't have light bulbs like that. We have light bulbs that that um, are much brighter and consume a tiny amount of energy. And all our music is on our iPhone. 
So uh, in all sorts of little ways, things are getting better. But the major determinant of human welfare, the single most important determinant that has happened in the past hundred years has been the empowerment and emancipation of women, which has led to a doubling of the workforce and longevity, increased longevity and health and welfare for everyone. I mean, there have been significant reverses, and this is a broad brush picture. It goes one way and it goes the other. But one of the reasons that the human population has managed to expand and live much more comfortably than anyone could have predicted in the 60s is because of the emancipation of women. That's it. So that gives me a certain amount of hope for the near future. But in the long term, human beings are mammal species, just like any other mammal species. And mammal species come and go. In fact, all species come and go. Now, the late paleontologist Dave Raup, who is himself extinct, uh, once said that at a first approximation, there is no life on Earth because 99% of all species that existed are extinct. And we're all going to go that same way. And my uh, worry, well, it's not a worry, my fear, prediction, suggestion is that human beings are going to go very soon. I was very vague about this in the book, but after the book, I started thinking about this some more, and I wrote an article in Scientific American a couple of weeks ago that seems to have got everybody in a fit of conniptions that uh, human beings are, are going to become extinct within a few hundred years. There, there are a number of reasons for this. One is that the population, although it was uh, increasing at a rapid rate in the 60s, over 2%, is now down to just over 1%. The peak was in 1968, but, the, but, but people are not having as many children. And this is true all over the world, not just in developed economies, but in what we patronizingly call the developing world. This is also true. The rate of replacement of population is far below the death rate in many countries. And there are a number of reasons for this. One is that sperm quality, for some reason, for reasons no one knows, are declining. Another is that People can't afford to have children, and people are putting off having children in many countries where they love children, like Italy, for example. You can't afford to have children, so the Italian population is tanking. In some countries where they've traditionally discouraged immigration, like Japan, it's already a serious problem. But behind all this is something else I heard, which is that the world economy has basically been static for 20 years. All these various growths and recessions are basically against a, long, a longer episode of stasis. And this, I think, is because we're running out of resources. We cannot sustain an economy based on growth. Politicians can no longer sell economies that say they're growing the economy. This no longer works because human beings, just one species out of millions, sequesters more than a quarter of all the energy resources of the world in terms of plant production. More than a quarter, maybe as much as 40%, nobody really knows. But it's an awful lot for one species. And that is, uh, gives a clue to why a lot of other species are dying out. Because if one species has all the, gets all the beans, there are fewer beans for anyone else, and they die out. But then I thought back to a paper I handled in Nature in the 90s, which um, put across a new concept called extinction debt. And it shows that it's all about 
uh, animals living in it was all a very dr- short paper very dry and theoretical but it talked about animals living in patches of habitat like little patches of woodland or little ponds or uh, anything divided by gaps which most animals live in like if you're a butterfly and you only make your only lay your eggs on a certain kind of plant well the whole world isn't a lawn of this plant they're little clumps of this plant and you go from one patch to the other and this paper showed that if you're a species that flits between patches you're more likely to live longer than a species that dominates in any particular patch because what happens if you live if you're what's called a dominant competitor living in a particular patch you can show that just a tiny diminution in the quality of that patch will lead to the inevitable extinction of the whole species even though everything seems to be fine and dandy so then it occurred to me that as human beings we only live in one patch the earth because we farm just about every part of the earth that's farmable we've colonized every continent and there are people everywhere you look there is no such thing as a pristine habitat anymore there are no patches of habitat on the earth the earth is one habitat patch and we're staying in it we are degrading the habitat quite significantly and that leads me to think that we're a dead species walking the population growth of human beings will peak in this century and start to go down it might be lower than it is now in 2100 although opinions vary uh, de- demographers can't agree on exactly when it'll peak and exactly when it'll go down but all agree that the population will start to decline and go down very quickly and i think it's going down one way i think we'll be extinct in a few hundred years Well, um on that note, I'd like to remind our listeners that Henry G's book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters and now you know the ending, uh is available at booksellers everywhere. It makes a great holiday read. Um it's a really wonderful story. Yeah, it, it's actually quite cheerful, really. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to end uh, I'm just kidding. End, yeah, end, no. And on that 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 doom doom laden note it is uh, it is, it is because, very cheerful yeah b- because true. even though like the vikings like ragnarok we know there'll be the last battle and we know we're going to lose it's good to keep fighting anyway even though we know what's going to happen and maybe one more incentive to do whatever you need to do to visit with your loved ones uh talk to them on the phone or give them a hug in person yeah it's it's not going to happen next week folks <laughs> i mean you know uh, uh, these things will take a long time to happen so so have fun yeah well, well after you and i have left this earth indeed indeed <laughs> all right well thanks very much for being on inquiring minds thank you very much so that's it for another episode thanks for listening and if you want to hear more don't forget to subscribe If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com/inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kai Rayhala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stephen Meyer, Awald, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indra Viscontis. See you next time.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.